Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest's individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Hello and welcome to the Bright Not Broken radio show on the Coffee Clatch. We are very excited to be here today with a very special guest. We are continuing with our whole child series and today's series is on dimensional assessment. The whole child and dimensional um, and dimensions of functioning, identifying strengths, challenges and interventions using dimensional assessment. And before we begin today, it's with great sadness that we announce the passing of our beloved mentor, Dr. Lorna Wing, whose work led us to Asperger's disorder being included in DSM-IV. Today, we are going to talk with Dr. Judith Gould, Lorna's longtime companion and co-worker. She's been published widely in the field of autism spectrum disorders and her research work with Lorna Wing led to the now accepted concept of of a spectrum of autistic conditions. Dr. Gould is the director of the National Autistic Center in the UK. She's a chartered consultant, clinical psychologist with nearly 40 years experience specializing in autism spectrum disorders and learning disabilities. She's a co-author of the DISCO, a dimensional assessment tool used around the world. In this segment of the Whole Child series, we're going to explore the life and work of Dr. Lorna Wing and the concept of the autism spectrum. In particular, we will focus upon the current diagnostic tools, their limitations, especially in the bright high ability population, and how a proven dimensional assessment tool, the DISCO, the Diagnostic Interview for Social and Communication Disorders, offers a clear picture of the whole child by identifying the strengths, challenges, and leads parents to appropriate interventions. Welcome to the program, Dr. Gould. Judy, are you there? I am here, and thank you so much for inviting me on this very sad occasion uh, of Lorna's passing on, but giving me the opportunity of uh, valuing her and, and talking about her work, and as you rightly said, continuing her work uh, that is so important with our concept of a dimensional method of assessment. Wonderful. We... Um, we feel the same. This is, this is a legacy that Lorna has given us all, and respectfully so. Um, her work deserves to be um, very well known, and we hope to continue that here, uh, especially today. And I also want to uh, make sure we welcome 
Rebecca Banks, my uh, co-host today. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. Hi, Diane. Hi, Judy. And um, as we get started today, I'd like to begin, Judy, by um, by asking you about um, the fact that it's been recently stated, and I know I've heard it before too, that any new ideas about autism are actually reiterations of Lorna's concept of the autistic spectrum. Will you please share about Lorna's career, her personal connection to autism, and if you will, about how you two met, the history of her work, and of your work together? That would be a great pleasure. Well, uh, I started working with Lorna in 1972 uh, as her research assistant. At that time, um, we, we were working in a, in a borough of London called Camberwell, and, and, and we were fortunate in that we had a special needs register. And, and Lorna was interested in looking at all children who were born on a particular day uh, and looking at their pattern of skills and difficulties. And she needed, obviously, a researcher to work with her on this project. So that's where I came in. Uh, Lorna already had formulated ideas, but you know, together we saw all the children who were born on a particular day. And that epidemiological study in the early 70s actually led to the whole concept of a spectrum. Originally, um, Lorna thought that, um, well, she questioned that Canna's autism was a single separate entity. Uh, and of course, what we found in the children was, yes, we found children with Canna's autism, but we found far more who had in common difficulties in their social interaction, communication, imagination, together with repetitive patterns of behaviors. So from that early work, the, the notion of a, um, a spectrum of conditions, that no one child is the same, but they share what we coined the term triad of impairments with repetitive routines. So that was groundbreaking in the 70s, but sadly, uh, we, the idea didn't catch on. Now, I don't know why that was, and, it, and it's fascinating now to think in, the, in 2000 that we'll be talking more about DSM-5, but how why DSM-5 now adopted this dimensional approach that we, you know, people can't be put into neat categories, neat boxes. Each person is an individual who needs to have their strengths and difficulties described. So essentially, that's, that's where we all began. Uh, and, and actually, since then, uh, then followed in 1981, Lorna actually had read about Asperger's work. And her husband, John Wing, spoke German. And he was able to translate Asperger's paper, papers um, because at that time, he was not known in English-speaking countries. And following that, um, Professor Uta Frith picked up on this idea and in her book uh, had a whole chapter about Asperger's cases. So it was Lorna who then, who in 1981, wrote her definitive paper coining the term Asperger syndrome. Now, the reason she said Asperger syndrome was that in translation, Asperger referred to autistic psychopathy. 
And the term psychopathy in English-speaking languages has a very different meaning from a different personality type that Asperger was describing. So she actually coined the term Asperger syndrome, which, which actually um, at the time was rather controversial because some people felt it was not good to have another label. But for Lorna, she felt it was important that some of the children and adults in the spectrum saw themselves as being different from those who had learning disabilities. So giving them a name actually made it more acceptable, more understandable, and, and hence the, it became adopted then by DSM-4 as a separate subgroup. So essentially those, well, those were the two key things was the, the, the notion of an autism spectrum, dimensional assessment, and, and Lorna describing Asperger's work. May I ask a quick question, Judy, about learning disabilities as you're using the term? Because being um, overseas, when you refer yes. to learning disabilities, are you referring to things such as dyslexia, a condition such as dyslexia, Central auditory no. processing, or are you referring no, to no? No, we're talking. I'm not sure in America whether you refer to mental handicap or mental retardation. Uh, I'm not sure what your terminology is, but we're talking about people who have a um, a, a lower intellectual level. Okay. Now, that, right. so specific learning difficulties would be dyslexia, dyspraxia, that sort of thing. So okay. we're talking about people who overall level of functioning. Is, 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 how can I say, they have learning dis disabilities rather than differences. I understand, and that's where there is some discrepancy in our terminology. And yes. I wanted to clarify it for myself and especially for our listeners because this yes. really is important. A lot of us, um, of, uh, as parents, have children who have multiple labels, who yes. have above average, average to above average IQs, Yes. But they have what you would refer to as learning difficulties yes. as opposed yes. to, okay, all right. Yeah. Now, I think I, I also need, I need to point out that um, we're talking about an overall level of functioning. So in our Camberwell study, all the children had an IQ below 70. But okay. we know, of course, that in autism, most children have a spiky profile. So if you do an overall level of intellectual functioning, you may find someone has very good skills in one area and very poor, maybe word processing, memory skills. So, you know, there is a huge debate about, you know, how you measure intelligence in this group of kids. Which brings in the need for multiple assessments in terms of intelligence testing exactly. along with the DISCO in terms of whole child functioning. Yes. And then it's complemented with intelligence testing. Yes, yes. Okay, yes. All right. Um, you and Lorna, um, moving on, uh, if you will, thank you for clarifying, have always supported this concept of a spectrum, but the Changes in DSM-5 have definitely created all kinds of con controversy, especially in the high-functioning community. Yeah. Now, um, can you kind of tell us how DSM has 
shifted the concept of the spectrum and um, explained the state of autism today, especially in terms of the higher ability groups. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, in, from my perspective, which I think is probably different from from you in in the states, is that we welcomed the the fact that DSM five have actually said now. We, that we're looking at autism in a dimensional way, that we're not, no longer putting people into subgroups and subcategories, that we, the umbrella term autism spectrum disorder is far more meaningful, but that alone is not useful without describing the specifiers, the actual saying, this person has an autism spectrum disorder, but this, you know, in this area he needs this, in this area he needs that. So it's describing each individual within the autism spectrum umbrella term. So from our perspective, DSM-5 have now recognized what Lorna and I were saying way back in the 1970s, 80s, that it, it, it isn't useful to put people into uh, a category. So, in fact, it's actually it's the quality of their behavior, their interactions, rather than numbers and counts. Numbers and counts being the checklist system yes, that we're yes, so right. accustomed to over here. How many yes. symptoms... And these exactly. are broad symptoms. Yes. And you mentioned no. specifiers, and yes. the DISCO seems to be more comprehensive. Could you explain what a specifier is? Yes, within um, DSM-5, they're actually now saying that you, you say autism spectrum disorder, and then you have to say level of, um, level, in, level of intellectual ability, level of language development, are there any other accompanying difficulties like ADHD, like dyslexia, uh, like Tourette's? So it's actually giving the umbrella term, and then in DSM-5 it states that you have to then describe the individual, which is a huge move forward from just saying, Johnny has Asperger's syndrome, or Johnny has autism, can has autism, or infantile autism, or, or childhood disintegrative disorder, or whatever other labels we used to have. So I don't know what the perspective is in, in, in America, but for us here, um, I mean, you know, it feels better to have a dim this dimensional approach. But with regard to the higher functioning, the, the uh, individuals who who would have been labeled Asperger's. Um, what has this, this new DSM-5 iteration of, right. of autism well, done? Yeah. Well, as far as we are concerned here, this will not make a, a difference. And I, I, maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but in, in the DSM-5 criteria, if you are diagnosing using part diagnosing using the disco we've actually been able to map onto the whole of the dsm-5 criteria onto disco items and there's a study that i can give you a reference to in a moment but um, we did not miss any of the individuals who are actually high functioning so in terms of the sensitivity and specificity of the instrument, we were still picking up 
the, the children who are high functioning who would have had the diagnosis of Asperger syndrome. And, and, and carrying on from that, we here at the Lorna Wing Center will continue to use the term Asperger syndrome. We will describe somebody, which we've always done. We've said um, Johnny has an autism spectrum disorder and his behavior best fits the pattern described by Asperger. So we are going to continue to use the term Asperger syndrome. So we are not going to be missing the high-functioning people. But I don't know what's going to happen with you. Uh-huh. Well, and, and that, if I can jump in here, mm-hmm. that is certainly where the question is. And I think agreement with you that um, by making autism a spectrum as it is was a good move. But mm-hmm. it seems like a step forward and a, several steps backwards to some of the restrictions, and it's been said um, specifically, and I know we didn't have this in our list, but to bring it up is important, the repetitive behavior uh, component tends to be something I think when clinicians don't well understand that term, yes. they tend mm-hmm. to use it to exclude um, I know I'm going all the way back to when Asperger was first put in DSM-IV, and that's when my son was diagnosed. He's now 24, and uh, he was four at the time, and that was um, a question that they didn't see the repetitive behaviors um, Mm -hmm. in which they thought they were. Uh Uh-huh, right, yes. Becky and I pointed out in both of our books, I believe, Right Now Broken and the ADHD Connection, through our conversation with you all, that um, sometimes, and I know um, I want to refer to Digby Tannum, am I saying his name correct? Yes, Um, you are, yes, yes. His work where he really pulled out well about sometimes repetitive behavior could be seen as repetitive um, thoughts. Exactly, yes, yes. And uh, which doesn't quite fit into an obsessive-compulsive disorder, but yet yes. it seems to have a pattern in these yes. individuals. And yes. um, so that's the, if you could clarify for us, that re- all repetitive behaviors are not necessarily um, just a stereotype. You are absolutely correct. But you see, in DSM-5, without, within the categories on repetitive behaviors, they have the simple stereotype behaviors, but they do go through specialist circumscribed interests and rituals and routines. Now, if we're saying that the clinicians are not interpreting that properly, then, then we have a problem. Because mm-hmm. That is an educational training problem, getting across what we mean by ritualized behaviors, which absolutely obsessive thoughts are ritualized behaviors. And of course, or eating patterns, right? Yes. I mean, it's, it's actually knowing how to ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. And of course, that brings me back. You know, I'm back to our disco um, in our training. You know, this is some, an area we spend a lot of time on. Well, let me right. ask you this. Oh, go ahead, Diane. No, go ahead, Diane. Well, even as um, there is some confusion about the ritualized behaviors and the repetitive routines, what about, I think there was some 
um, con- misunderstanding about imagination and the term yes. imagination. Um, I remember calling you all and asking, oh, Lorna, is this what you all meant by imagination? And she said, absolutely, because she was talking about a whole different realm. Can you explain what you all mean by ind- imagination? And yeah. Because yeah. most of us, it's flights of fancy and Yes, creativity. Well, oh. yeah, we 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 actually um, the the triad of impairments was social interaction, social communication, social imagination, and if you had those three core impairments, it was highly associated with repetitive patterns of behaviour. Now, nobody nobody picked up on imagination, and DSM and ICD haven't, and still haven't. Now, our concept of social imagination is is the ability to know what's going on in other people's minds in a social context. It's being able to know consequences of your actions, learning from your mistakes, and having a, an inner thoughtful world about how other people are impacting on you. Imagination on its own in our early study, because as I said, we were looking at children with low-level functioning and we were measuring it on imaginative play. And a lot of the children, didn't. if they did have imaginative play, it was repetitive and it was copied. It wasn't truly creative. But as we've seen more able individuals, the Asperger type, we realize that there are many people who are highly creative and you know, up in art, in science, in music. So we're not talking about creativity. We're talking about social imagination, which is being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and be able to think through your life plan. And that's what we mean by social imagination. Is that, is that clear? Yes, and it's also, it sounds like it's the ability to infer to yes. read between the lines, yes. To, yes. to set goals and understand yeah. how to reach them. So this, yes. these are all part and parcel of executive function challenges. It is, yes. It, in, in, in our academic jargon, it's in theory of mind and executive functioning. Okay, great. That is great that you clarified that. And, and speaking of... Um, I think what you just said a moment ago, it's an educational training problem. It is. And, that, yeah. and th- this is another key area that can really help the outlook of a clinician to, if they can get a full-bodied understanding of, of that characteristic in itself, which is such yes. a core component, then... Um, it, it really can change the outcome. Of, yes. Of can I can I come back to um, your concerns about the repetitive patterns of behavior? Because yeah. the, the, the DSM-5, in their wisdom, have got rid of all the subgroups. And then what have they done? They've created a new subgroup called social yeah. communication disorder. And the only way it's differentiated from autism is that there are no repetitive patterns of behavior. So mm-hmm. one of your concerns may well be that your Asperger group may be put into that group and then have not have the interventions and support that they need. Am I correct? You yeah, are. And that's that's yeah. what we brought out in, in our book, Bright Not Broken, and 
2011, before DSM-5 came out, we, we voiced that concern. Yes. Absolutely. So, yeah. so again, it's educating people. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's, are the clinicians being trained in what autism truly is? Well, and, we, we, um, we, we do this in our training here at the Lorna Wing Center. We run training courses for relevant people who will be diagnosing, mm-hmm. and we strongly emphasize all the sorts of things I'm talking to you about. So, I mean, we only, we, obviously, we, we touch on a number, but we, do, we don't get to everybody who's uh, diagnosing, of course. Well, and, and just to um, reiterate that, Temple Grandin said when she first saw that this disorder was going to be separated out, she said, I mean, in her really eloquent way, that is just stupid is what she said. Yes. <laughs> she, she, she said, said that, that is autism. <laughs> yes. Correct. Well, and, correct. Yes. And I think that's leading to a lot of confusion, a whole lot. And here, in terms of the specifiers on the disco versus yes. now, I'm trying to get this straight in my mind. Um, does do the DSM tools um, do do those use the same specifiers or yes? yes. Okay. Now, now right. you. I mean, what I said earlier is as I, you know, we've done research on using the DISCO with the new DSM-5 criteria. And uh, so we have, so looking at the criteria, we've mapped all that onto the DISCO questions, and we did not miss the individuals who were high-functioning. So clinicians could rest assured Using our DSM-5 DISCO algorithms, you will actually, you know, pick up all the children who should be in the autism spectrum. Can I give it? This is a reference here. If you if you went onto the Wales Autism Research Centre website, there's a very good summary. Uh, a paper written on DSM-5 using the DISCO. And, for example, in in a sample of 200 cases, um, we found that 90% of the 89 individuals with a diagnosis of Gilberg's Asperger syndrome qualified in DSM-5 ASD. So, you know, we now have research evidence that using the DISCO uh, will actually um, enable clinicians to to get the correct diagnosis. And the other thing to say is, at the moment, it's the only single tool that can be used to capture the full description in DSM-5. That that was my next question, Judy, exactly that. And that is that if you can tell us the limitations, which I think the basic one is obvious about the other tools are categorical. Am I correct? Yes, yes correct. That's and right. Specifically, yeah. the ADIR, as, as we've seen in some of the research that is listed on the whale site that you mentioned, yes. um, can you 
can you give us some specifics about the limitations of the ADIR in comparison to the DISCO? Well, the strength of the DISCO is that it provides an overall profile of skills and abilities and challenges and disabilities and areas of remediation. So for clinical purposes, it allows, it allows for simultaneous information gathering, which is different from the ADIR and, and, we, and there's the 3DI is another tool we use here, and the ADOS. Now, the, in a way, we shouldn't compare the ADOS because the ADIR and the DISCO are interview schedules you're looking at development, development whereas mm-hmm. the ADOS is a structured observation of an individual in a clinical setting with very prescribed, um, structured um, um, tasks that then the diagnostician, the clinician, will interpret as to whether they're in or out. It all is based on counts. Now, our system is not based on counts. It's based on clinical experience and clinical judgment, and that's what makes us different. But out of interest, um, there's been a recent paper by Tony Sharman, who's a professor here at the Institute of Psychiatry, King's College London, and he has written a paper comparing the ADIR and uh, the ADOS and the DISCO and the 3DI, and he looks at, and he, he actually is quoting that the strengths of the DISCO is that it, does, it's a, it provides the profile it's not saying, is this autism or not autism, or autism spectrum. Right. It's and more in, than that. And in high-ability individuals, it's harder to get a count to say it that is. this is a spectrum. It is. Because... Yeah, the the reason being is that if you have a if you have a good intellectual ability, you are very good at learning strategies of of managing your problems, and and but often that is through the person's intellect rather than by social instinct. But the more able individuals will mask their symptoms. And therefore, in a certainly in a formal structured setting, they can do very well, and they will be missed. Well, may I ask you, in terms of age too, um, is the disco limited to a specific age group, or is no. it no? It's it's all levels of ability and all ages. I mean, obviously, you adapt your quest. It's it, it actually we look at the early. If, if you have, a, if you're talking about a teenager or an, a young adult, we actually explore what the person was like as a child, and we're interested in what they're like currently. So it enables you to have an, a, a, an ever diagnosis and a current diagnosis. So that you know, that again, people change over time. Uh, they usually improve over time. So if seeing a three-year-old would look rather like someone with Kana's classic autism, and you see the same child at 12, and they look like somebody with Asperger's syndrome. So it, it, it gives you, again, the dimension across age. Well, let me and, clarify this. I'm sorry, Diane, but one concept I'm seeing more and more over here is that people outgrow their autism. 
Yes. Is is that a true statement? Um, outgrow. I, 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 I'm sorry. This is anecdotal, and my experience over 40 years is that nobody out nobody outgrows autism. What they do is they outgrow some of the behaviors that define autism. Autism, at the moment, you can only diagnose on behavior. And therefore, if you measure behavior on certain instruments, the person can improve to such an extent that they no longer have the... You're not ticking the boxes anymore. So you say they've outgrown autism. But in fact, if you look at more subtle manifestations of the problem in social settings where the person hasn't been able to rehearse or familiarize themselves. So my, this is my own personal view, is that people can improve greatly with the right remediation and the right treatment programs, but they never actually lose that lack of social instinct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And and what I was going to say was, as you were talking about so important, such an important point about developmental stages and things looking different, when we wrote our first book, The ADHD Autism Connection, before we had the, the um, pleasure and privilege to actually speak with you and Lorna, we, um, we had read uh, her book, The Autism Spectrum, The Autistic Spectrum, and we found um, so key was her explanation of different degrees of impairment mm-hmm. and yeah. how it was looking different at different developmental stages to which we named our chapter on that explanation, The Changing Faces of Autism. Yes. Mm. And, totally agree. Um, yes, yes, yes. We, it, they, 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 none of them stay the same. They they move on and uh, and... The, and the be- the behavior the underlying problems are still there but as i said that they learn strategies of coping uh in different settings and and, and because my my other passion at the moment is the the misdiagnosis or no diagnosis of women and girls in the spectrum mm-hmm. and women and girls are even cleverer at masking their symptoms yes they are. They, they, can, they can be very quiet. I mean, you're, you're speaking to my heart as a as a teacher I, of adolescence. Yeah. Um, I see some of these young girls, and um, and and they try. And then when as their peer group develops other interests, yeah, they mm-hmm. seem to lag behind. And then yeah. they tend to become. Um, they're they're the young ladies who oftentimes have problems with grooming issues. Oh yes, and um, mm-hmm. they become very quiet, um, or 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 highly social in the sense that they have their one group. But when that yes. group moves on, they get very lost very quickly. And those they are just do. a couple of observations. Yeah. Yes, but you've got two go wonder, you've got two wonderful advocates of women in the spectrum in the states, Leanne Halliday Willey 
and Jennifer mm-hmm. O'Toole, as well as Temple, of course. But, but, <laughs> yes. the, but the two, the, those two call them, they say they have Asperger's syndrome, whereas I don't think Temple does. But uh, if you ever have opportunity to listen to either of those ladies, I mean, they describe their childhood as being such a nightmare for them. But they learned these strategies, but they still get into trouble. They're very vulnerable and they miss out on subtle social cues. Uh-huh. No, you're absolutely right, and and they're both wonderful um, examples of um, being able to to give back to the community by expressing their own difficulties yes. and their successes. They've both been very successful. Um, yes. Leanne has, mm-hmm. uh, I believe, she has a PhD as yes. well. Yes. And, yes. And she teaches at the university, and yes. um, and she has raised um, daughters. That's right. That's right. She's a. Um, I mean, I've met her, and she is just a lovely person. She is. Uh, but she's she done is. extremely well. And this is what we're saying about um, the the fact that people, high functioning people, you know, given the right support, you know, can do well, as well as anybody else, and should not lose out on those opportunities. That's right. Go ahead, Diane. I wanted to ask about the child development. I wanted to get to that question in terms of, um, so Diane, do you want to ask that one? or? Oh, go ahead. Um, go ahead. Okay, well, one problem that we've noticed, and I mean we've experienced as parents, I know Diane has and I have with my children, is that we have to obtain multiple evaluations um, as the face of our autism would change new symptoms emerge. We have to go get a new label. Um, Can the DISCO help parents avoid um, having to seek multiple evaluations um, over the course of a child's development and early childhood to get a proper understanding of strengths, challenges, and interventions that might help? Yeah, well, this, this is this is exactly what we advocate. And, and when you know, when we set up the Lorna Wing Centre 23 years ago, um, this is you know, we had to convince the the, the funding authorities that that spending time and having a full diagnosis as we could offer would in the end save time, save money, because because you know, funders all they're concerned about is you know how much do things cost. And what are the outcomes? So rather than parents going from one to another to another and having all these different labels, it could be sort of right hemisphere learning disorder or nonverbal learning disorder, dyspraxia, dyslexia. I mean, rather than you know, having all of that, when we do the full assessment here, which is a combination of the, 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 the diagnostic interview together with psychological assessment of the person and looking at all, and observing the person in different settings, pulling all that together means it's a one-off. And from that, we've got this every dimension on social communication and so on and on learning ability on on memory on word processing on language we can cover all the areas that you might have had to go to each to different professionals um and it it also gives um daily living skills so 
rather than having another assessment on independence, on maybe people who are less able, it, it, it can actually explain that this person is not good at dressing, not good at feeding, whatever. These are the supports they're going to need in place. And educationally, what sort of things are they going to need to support them in school? So we think that our method actually covers all the things you're talking about. And and when you um, give someone a report once you've compiled the information from DISCO, then I know at the center you also have a team and you, um, if, if someone is going back maybe where they don't have that team, you let them know the proper professionals that can help with each component. Is Correct. that right? Correct. Correct. So we, we wouldn't, you know, we, we would not prescribe like uh, um, X needs seven hours of speech and language therapy. Uh, we would actually say this child not only has the autism spectrum disorder, but clearly has additional speech and language problems. Therefore, a full, a full assessment by that professional is important to, to be able to, to give that person the support in, in their different settings. So, so we are very careful that we, if we think that somebody needs further assessment in a particular area, we would recommend that. But the good thing about the DISCO is that it targets specific areas rather than leaving parents and clinicians to watch and guess yeah. Uh, having a full-scale assessment, you yes. get targeted, you get a roadmap to either yes. the, the yes. specific yes. evaluations yes. or any specific interventions. Yes, we do. Yes. Okay. And that, you know, the strength, the strength of, of an assessment here is the report because that's what it's all about, is, is then sharing that information with all the relevant professionals. Right. And Something we've touched on here, and I mean we're saying it throughout our conversation, but I want to just pull it out to the front, is when you get an individual with um, not just normal to um, above average functioning, but somebody who is an extremely high IQ, yes. we're talking in the upper 140s and yes. with, the, yes. with my son. <laughs> and yes. Just tell us how that picture, that giftedness, um, is misunderstood sometimes to um, to believe that if you are really that smart, as one would say, you can't possibly have a problem like autism. Can oh, you yeah. help dispel that myth? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Very, very important. Uh, we have had many. We've had. We certainly have had some people here who um, would question question me in terms of my intellectual ability, and I, I have felt very have felt somewhat threatened by them. Um, but, but, but you see, taking, taking the developmental history is, and, and what the patterns of behavior are, are, are independent of your level of, of IQ. Because you, you mean, that's something that's, that's separate. Um, because it's the behavior, irrespective of what your IQ is, it's the behavior that you're diagnosing the autism. Now, underneath, the same strategies are, 
are relevant for anybody of any level of ability, but it, of course, has to be adapted to the person who is functioning at that extremely high level. Uh, obviously, you're going to adapt what you're going to offer recommendations. Uh, I'll get an example. Um, uh, we had a young man here who you know, had a first-class honors in maths at, at a well-known university here, um, and he came, and, and we were doing neuropsychological assessments with him. And so d- despite him having that very high IQ, the, he had a patchy profile. There were areas that he was struggling. And, and interestingly, in, in the leisure time, during the assessment, when we're making observations, unstructured observations, what did he choose to do but spin a sensory toy in the assessment room? Because that's what gave him his relaxation. So you know, the, 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 whole, the whole area has to be investigated, sensory, cognitive, triad of impairments. Nothing can be left without without observation so there's no reason why you can't you can't assess somebody at a very high level even when they have very good strategies of covering up some of the behaviors if you ask the right questions and you know your autism you can get to the bottom of it excuse me does also measure things like sensory and yes, yes. it's for our listeners so that they oh, understand. Oh, it's terribly, so terribly important, the sensory. Uh, in, yes. within, in the DISCO, we have questions on, on all the sensory uh, modalities because that, however bright you are, if you're not able to select out uh, various stimuli in an exam setting, you may, maybe you need to be in a room on your own without, without fluorescent lighting, uh, it will impact on your functioning if you ha- are highly sensitive to the environment. So that would come in our recommendations very strongly. I'm glad that we covered sensory. That was going to be a question I wanted to be sure we we brought up. And, and is there uh, ongoing research um, on the issue of sensory and autism? Yes, there is. I'll refer you back again to the Wales Autism Research Centre. Uh, our colleagues there, I don't have a ref... Yeah, in, hmm, sorry, I'm looking on my bits of paper in front of me. Um, yes, we have, uh, I think it's Sulikum. Yeah, this is a paper by Professor Sulikum, including me and Lorna, describing the sensory abnormalities of individuals with autism, Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders, 2007. So, yes, we have looked at sensory issues using the disco. And... Um, once again, it just really speaks to how comprehensive the DISCO is. And as we have talked about in this entire series we've done this year on the whole child, we have spoke about, um, we spoke with Dr. Silverman of the Gifted Development Center, Bobby Gilman, on educational testing, on psychological testing. And uh, we also spoke with Dr. Dan Peters and Dr. Susan Daniels from the Summit Center on the Mm -hmm. twice exceptional child and looking Mm -hmm. at the gift and how that's misunderstood. But this is so significant Um, to us. This just kind of brings it all together. This 
this tool and, as you said, the education of, um, of the professionals and of the parents to help yes. get an understanding of, yes. of what the pattern of abilities and disabilities are. Quite. Look in a, and, and I've seen throughout the literature of the DISCO, you referring to the whole child as well or the whole person. Mm. What we found from feedback from families who've been here is they have found the process therapeutic because we always start by asking what can your child do, not what is the problem, what is it that your child can't do. So that's our premise, is we're always looking at the positive, and then we can then relate what the difficulties are in relation to the strengths. And, and it, 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 you know, going through the interview for a full disco, it, it takes, you know, it takes about three hours. But then, you know, so, so do the other diagnostic interviews. And if you do it properly, first time round, it's good for the families because you are asking them to give the story about their child. And some of them say to us, they say, how did you know that? Nobody's ever asked us that before. So it's not rigid. It's, 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 it's a semi-structured interview. And in the training, we give the clinicians the understanding, hopefully, the understanding of what, them, what the concepts are, what are they meant to be getting at. It is not asking direct questions, yes or no, in a formalized way. And that's so important because that once you have the education, then it's easier to to know what questions to ask. And that, yeah. as you mm-hmm. said, is, is part of the whole point. And one of our other um, favorite uh, professionals we've had on the program, and I believe you know her, Michelle garcia Winner. I do, yes, yes. And Michelle, um, one of her favorite books we love to recommend is How to Be a Social Detective. Yes. And she has mm-hmm. said, you've got to ask the right questions. Yes. Sometimes that's more than half the battle. That's what Lorna always did. She uh, she would never let go. When she was when she was actually on a particular um, thread, she would she would chivy, she would query, she would look for clues. We always said that she was like she was always a, she was a detective, and once she once she needed to know the answer, she would pursue it <laughs> until she got where she needed in order to help the families and the people with autism. Well, one of the um, things I didn't say earlier, which is terribly important, is that she herself was a mother of a daughter with autism. And I think that that perspective of living with autism, together with her brilliant mind and her academic excellence, mm. that combination a lot of us don't have. Mm. And, and living with it and seeing it, as well as, as, as I say, the intellectual side of it, really made her different from other people. Absolutely, we would agree. And she said to us once that, you know, when we said to her, well, we actually qualified to be taking on such a big paradigm here. And she said, and I know she said it with great conviction, that there's nothing 
like the steely determination of parents to get something like this done. Absolutely. Bring tears to my eyes. <laughs> yeah, no, and, no, but nobody, nobody else would be focused and, and committed unless, unless you, you, you had a child. And, and the frustration of having a child where, where professionals are not listening to you and they're saying, what's the problem? And you know there's a problem. Parents always know there's a problem. Well, let me ask you this, because we're speaking so much about children, and and yes, I mean, to me, that was just the highest compliment, Diane, when when she did say to us that it's the steely determination. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just, you know, she recognized that, and, and that was part of the kindred spirit that we share so deeply with your work, Judy, and Lorna's mm. work, and we're so grateful for, for all that you've done. But one initiative that we have here in the States is early um, detection and early um, identification. How mm. early or how young could uh, the DISCO, uh, what's the youngest age, if you will, I'm not sure how to frame this, that the DISCO mm. would be effective? Is there a point yeah. at which you have to wait till your child develops or when you're initially, I mean, yeah. because... Mm, well, mm, well, we 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 have an infancy infancy section in the disco, but that is not it. There, what we use the term over here, red flags. You know, you you'll pick up things like, you know, early sharing, early social pointing, um, sociability, you know, interested in people rather than objects. But um, actually. I see. I know there's a lot of early, a lot of really good research being done on very early picking up and detection of the children, and lots of lots of interesting projects that I'm I'm sure are very important. But in essence, as a clinician, um, it's it's when they children actually mix with their peers. So, I mean, that can happen, you know, as toddlers when they go to playgroup or whatever you might call it over there. Um, it, that, that's when you start beginning to worry that they're not interacting with other children. They may be okay, particularly if they're bright, you know, they may be okay with other adults, but it's the peer interaction that, that is so important. So sometimes with the more able children, it takes a bit longer to to be definitive in your diagnosis. But what we do here is we call it a kind of a working diagnosis where we suspect that this might be the problem, but we may not be definitive until the child has opportunities to interact with other children. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. It does, and and another thing is a lot of children of high intellect, and I know um, exactly what you're what you were referring to because was, you took me back there about 20 years for me when my son was three, and he seemed to entertain himself so well that I just yeah. thought it part of his advanced development yes. until until he was. Um, escorted out and asked not to return of three different, uh, we call them Mother's Day outs, like early preschools. Uh-huh. <laughs> his behavior was so awful with the other children. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> yes, well, and, and you, 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 you see, the, the thing is, the thing is that we, as parents, 
we will we will always normalize our children we will always see the best in them and we you know in those early years we will actually say well as you just said because of his he's extremely bright he prefers to be on his own the rest of the children are not at his level why would he want to interact with them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they well, right they were in his way so to speak quite yes <laughs> Well, may I return to the concept of girls for a moment? Sorry? Excuse me, because I do think that, that overall they've they've been um, underrepresented underrepresented in studies and in our and in our understanding, if you will, of of what autism and giftedness look like. Um, but have you found in your research, Judy, that the girls who tend to be more social, show um, more misinterpretation of conversation and social cues in that context is, is, I mean, as we tease out some of the differences between girls and boys, um, the boys tend to be less social, the girls are more social. What does it look like when the girls are more social? Um. Mm. They they do interact and they can be reciprocal and they can make good eye contact and mm-hmm. it's if again but if you're just doing observations in a structured setting where they are, where things are predictable you will miss that and the girls do present differently from the boys their underlying problems are the similar but the way the behaviors are showing are going to be our gender based in that sense so yeah it just it takes it takes more time and it's more difficult to diagnose the girls and okay. um, because they are I mean essentially I know Tony Atwood's done a lot of work on this that essentially the girls the girls mask but they are very able at what and want to be sociable they're, I mean, some of the girls are like Temple, who are more more like tomboys, and and they they they, they do more, you know, their routines and and, and interests are more male oriented, uh, whereas then you have the more feminine girls who, uh, you know, will it, it, they collect Barbie dolls or they they collect um, beanie babies or things like that, which doesn't look any different from other girls' collections. But, but it's back to quality. Like I was saying about quality rather than numbers, it's it's not what they do in their collections and their routines. It's actually how they are manifested. It's the quality of what they do with their interests rather than the actual interests. Another favorite one here is love of animals particularly horses mm-hmm. whether that's a british thing i don't know but but many many of the girls really adore animals and and spend a lot of time collecting about information about animals and having animals and being with animals animals can be much easier to interact with than people i had um uh well actually i've had several young girls who were quite involved in artistic pursuits and they clung 
their fashion would imitate yes. the art that they were interested in. For instance, they developed full identities. And it took them a little bit longer in terms of pulling it all together, but they would come out and get haircuts like the anime art that they would draw. Yes. They would use yes. the makeup the same way. I don't right. know. Um, That's very familiar, that would, is. Yes. Mm. They would use that as their almost their prototype um, yes. for... Yes, and it would help them also interact. It's almost That's, like... Yes, I yeah, absolutely agree. And they actually, uh, some women I know, uh, become different persona. Um, they ad- ad- really adapt a role that they become that person. And, you know, there are lots of actresses, stand-up women comics who are in the autism spectrum because they learn the script and they can perform really well under those circumstances. But in a one-to-one, in a situation that they haven't prepared, they can become highly anxious. Well, and it's important what you pointed out, um, both of you, about their interests, because sometimes, and, and we did, it reminded me of a show that we did with Temple, about uh, called companions and careers and we talked about animals and and the love and the bonding and how they learn so much socially from a relationship with an animal and horses yeah. specifically that seems to be so well, i would say here too that is one of the number one bonds and yeah. we talked about how you can turn that love into a career and yeah. as, as becky was just saying um whether it be art or as you mentioned, um, actresses, you know, acting, mm. It, mm. it definitely their strengths can be used um, yes. to apply and, and give them a very meaningful and productive yes. life in, yes. in yes. sort of hyper-focusing on their strengths. Yes. And, that's yeah. and, and, and another, another po- a problem area that, again, some of the women I've seen who've had a diagnosis in adult life is then being concerned about telling people because they often have children themselves and then become worried that maybe social service, equivalent whatever social services mm-hmm. would be with you, of actually you know, questioning their ability to, to, to bond and to, to, you know, to parent yeah. their children. And you know, they have so many problems with society rather than than the, for themselves you know the, the whole notion of of differentness we have to accept in society and from us I mean, from a social aspect it's very much it very much changes in time what is accepted and what is not uh, and we've I think we've still got a long way to go but I, I think people are acknowledging people's differentness now far more than they used to be. But that, that might vary depending what, what county you live in, what, what town you live in, what region. You know, it's, society is important. It is. And here in America, and I know in Great Britain, you all have uh, multiple ethnicities and people yes. of color. Um, in terms of those groups, is identification and um, evaluation more challenging because of mainstream? And, and do you think the disco is as effective in minority groups um, as it would be with 
with your usual Caucasian? Well, we we would we would like to think so, um, because the disco has been translated into um, a few a few different languages, and it was very interesting with uh, working with our Japanese colleagues to adapting the disco questions to to the Japanese society was a fascinating process that Lorna was involved with with our colleague Dr. Tokyo Uchiyama in Japan and it was very interesting because the questions had to be changed and adapted because things like social hierarchy and maleness femaleness and and you know how how an eye contact all those things have to be adapted to the culture so you know, we have the basic questions in the disco, but that can then be translated into the the relevant culture and the different minority groups. Well, in, in here in America, for instance, teen African-American males, especially the teens, have been taught that it's rude to make eye contact yes, when, yes. when speaking. And yes. so... Um, one thing that a clinicians, and that's part of clinical judgment, would it would it be? Am I correct in saying, in in assuming that that that's part yes. of the clinician's awareness of minority behaviors? Yes, yes, and yes, that as course. they're making their diagnosis, yes, that yes. that would come into play. Yeah, right. you see, and I think this is where the disco again comes into its own because it isn't a checklist, so it isn't saying tick the box on eye contact or not. It's actually saying, in this culture, what is the norm for making eye contact? So whatever the norm is in that culture, has this person got a problem? Okay. All right. And that is part, uh, yes, and it yeah. makes perfect sense. Yeah. And so, so it, 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 it is common sense. But if you're wedded to following the rules of the interview and you don't see the bigger picture, you're going to get it wrong. Right, which goes back to education as well. It does, yes, I'm afraid so. Mm. It does. And we, um, I hate to say this, but I think our time is drawing near here, and we could just, um, this is just such a fascinating topic, and so much more needs to be said, and so much more needs to be done with the disco. Mm-hmm. And um, and we we are so thankful for you uh, sharing your heart with us today about Lorna. And um, as we go forward, we will know that um, her work continues to be so very valuable, as does yours. Mm-hmm. And um, we know that the disco is not currently being used in the U.S., but we do understand <laughs> plans are underway to bring it here in the next year. Well, um, we most definitely, providing we can all work, we you know you, we can work together on this. Um, and, and I feel, I mean, today for me, talking with you, in a way, has been very difficult. But for me, it the legacy now, all that time and all that work and all those ideas that Lorna had, if we can bring it into fruition with you in the states. Wow, that would be an amazing mm-hmm. contribution for her and in remembrance of her. Absolutely, and um, and we 
Um, we hope to have you return once um, once things are active here. With that, we will have you back again. And as always, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show and to talk about um, just the helpful ways of understanding the the autism spectrum. I mean, it, yes. it's yes. it's in such a way that. Um, is in some ways it's a very simple explanation about a very complicated process. Well, Lorna has a lot of it is common sense, and and you know free of jargon and fuzzy ideas and uh, and crazy ideas about different interventions. Mm-hmm. You know, she all of that was an anathema to her. You know, she she would get to the bones of things and say you know, describe the person, and you only diagnose if somebody needs help. Mm. That's an important point as well. I'm glad. It is because there are so many of us, so many of us have autistic traits, and we wouldn't diagnose, would we? Right, right. Right. But 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 at the same time, you're still getting that important profile, that that whole profile of strengths and weaknesses, whether regardless of the diagnosis or... Yes. Mm. Yes. 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 Judy, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I'm just so indebted to you and Lorna, and we both are, and um, I'm very grateful. It's been a pleasure. Always is a pleasure talking to you both. I think, you know, we are like minds. And uh, think of us on Monday when we have Lorna's funeral. Absolutely. 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 You will be in our thoughts and prayers. And Thank you. Um, we will conclude our show here today on the Whole Child Series with Dr. Judith Gould. And um, I am Diane Kennedy and my co-host, uh, Rebecca Banks. And, of course, we always give a nod and a thank you to Marianne Russo for hosting the Coffee Platch, this wonderful network that's been um, such um, a help to so many parents. And, and we're thankful for guests like you. And um, we will say good day. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.